0: this Memorial Day weekend, we're all reminded that we have many, many privileges, many freedoms, many rights because other people have paid a price. And I want us to pray now for families that have been deeply hurt by the loss of someone they love who's serving the country. It's easy for Americans to forget that you know, we've had soldiers in Afghanistan for over a decade now who have been serving there and before that in Iraq and there have been other places and there have been soldiers killed. There have been some who are suffering today from PTSD. There are families that have been deeply wounded and deeply affected and we don't want to forget. We we want to remember and we want to pray for those families who've lost loved ones. We also want to pray uh, for those who have been injured in some way because of their service for our country. We don't forget them either. We want to pray for them and for their families. Of course, our children today have written cards for soldiers who are uh, injured and ill at Fort Fort Hood. Uh, out in the foyer, you may have seen the table there where you can get cards. You can fill that out. And Captain... Gary Sands, no relation to me, is going to get his team and distribute those to soldiers just as a reminder to them that they aren't forgotten. There are people praying for them. So would you join with me to pray now? Heavenly Father, we do pray for families, Lord, who are missing their sons and daughters, brothers, sisters, Lord, because they have served their country and they have lost their lives. We pray for those families, for their for their sustenance, Lord, that you would uphold them spiritually, that you would strengthen them, and that, Lord, all of them would come to know you as Savior and find the healing that is deepest of all. We pray your blessings on them. Lord, we pray also for soldiers who have been injured, soldiers who have been harmed in different ways, Lord, in body or in soul. And we pray for them and their healing, Lord, their recovery. We have people closely connected to our church, members of our church who, Lord, still deal with the fallout of their service. And we pray for healing there and for their families, patience for them, Lord, and healing for the whole family. Make them whole, we pray, and we pray your blessings on them as well. Lord, we're mindful that... We have great privileges, but we also have great responsibilities, and we pray that you would help us to be faithful to those. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Welcome to everyone. It's wonderful having those baptisms this morning, wasn't it? Just to be able to celebrate with these brothers and sisters, but also with families, just as this confession of faith, a celebration of faith. Welcome to everyone here, all of you online as well. This really is a time, I think, at least for me, where I've been reflecting on our responsibilities as a church. I think over this last year, many of us have reflected on our lives, our families, way of life, what we count as important, what's valuable, what's central. COVID has had a had a role to play in all of that. It's like what we have been used to has been shaken, and it causes us to reassess. And so, I've been doing that. Other staff members have as well. But it's something I've prayed a lot about, I've thought deeply about, because I don't want to be the same pastor coming out of this as I was going into it. And I don't want First Woodway to be the same church. I'm so grateful for what God has done in and through this church. So grateful for it. And I give God all glory for what he's done. But I want to reach higher. I want to reach out further. I want to be more like Christ. I myself want those things. And I think we all want that for our church. Now, some of you, probably, you're visiting this morning, and I'm glad you're visiting. I hope you'll Just be patient with me because I'm talking to our church and to our members about the church because we want to be all that God has called us to be. It's so very, very important. So earlier in the month, really the very beginning of May, we had a staff retreat. And on that retreat, we talked about a lot of things. We prayed about a lot of things. And as I introduced last week, I shared some things with the staff that I felt were really very important for us going forward. These are things that I had prayed about for weeks going into it. And I shared some of it with you last week. I want to pick up on that again this week. It's a little bit different. It's a little unusual for how I usually proceed on Sunday morning, but I think it's really important and I do feel like the Lord led me to do it. As I said last week, First Woodway, what are we called to be? It's really very simple. We're called to be a Christian community serving a world in need. Now, to say Christian community is to say something. It means we are to be an alternative community. What we have in church is and must be distinctive, not like the world. Out in the world, you have hatred and greed and lust. You have a hardness of heart. You have pain and suffering as people wound one another and betray one another. People in the world suffer. What they need to find in the church is something different. They won't find anything that's perfect, but they need to find a community that is life-giving. Instead of beating them down and dragging them into the dust, it's a community that builds them up and inspires them and helps them become the people they want to be and, in fact, that God wants them to be. That's what we're called to. That's what, that's what our vision for this church is. And so last week, talking about that, I made three points. The first was that we need to soak everything we do in prayer. We're not smart enough. We're not spiritual enough to do the work of the Lord, except as we pray, except as we seek God. So prayer is central. The second thing is to follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit and let the Spirit guide us. And the third is to preach the gospel in word and deed. What is the gospel? I summarized it last week. If you weren't here, it's really an easy summary. You can find it out in the foyer behind the welcome desk on the brick wall. It says, God is good, grace is real, everyone's welcome. And I made the point, and I restated it here, when we say everyone's welcome, we mean everyone's welcome. Everyone's welcome. I mean that literally. Everyone's welcome. Now, a couple of folks were made a little nervous by that, for good reason. For good reason. Because there are many today who think that the church needs to adapt to the world. That welcoming people to them means simply accepting the world's version of the way things are and living life as the world mandates. But that's not what we're talking about at all. We're talking about a community of Christ followers. Jesus is Lord. He rules by his spirit and by the scriptures. And so we seek to follow the word of God in everything that we do. We are not a permissive community, but we are or at least we're called to be, a loving and humble community. A community that loves people so deeply that it welcomes them with open arms. Not the kind of thing you see at the grocery store during the age of COVID, where people aren't quite sure how close they're supposed to be to each other. Now you're walking along there and you make the long way around. We don't want anyone coming into a Christian community and feeling like people are kind of separating from them. No, we welcome people, all people, literally everyone with open arms, a community of love that says, we are glad that you're here, you belong here. Also, a community of humility, Because these people coming in, they may be sinners, but what are we? I mean, what are we? We are people who are debtors to grace. And so, we don't pass judgment on people. We receive them. We receive them into a community that's seeking to do the will of Christ. We don't receive people into a community that just is happy with their chains we don't, we're not happy with our chains. We want to be free of every sin that we might follow Christ. So we welcome people into this community that's seeking to serve Jesus Christ. Community, community, community. You hear I'm saying that word over and over again. And that really leads to the next point that I want to make. It's my first one this morning, but it's the fourth one in this series, and it's that we need to promote community. How do we become the church God wants us to be? It's by promoting this network of friendships, deep, lasting friendships that forms a kind of web that anyone who comes within the community, whether they're Christian or not, they get caught up in it. They almost can't escape from it because there are these connections that we have and we care for one another. I am absolutely convinced that the church has lost traction in its effort to get the gospel out to the world in the last decades, not because it hasn't talked enough, but because it hasn't loved well enough. And it hasn't even loved within the community deeply enough. See, it's not just us loving people outside the church. It's us loving people in the church, everyone in the church. So when someone comes in, they instantly find their place and they know they belong. Conversion begins with belonging. It really does. After the Apostle Paul, perhaps the greatest missionary in the history of the church is a man named St. Patrick. You've heard of St. Patrick. We have St. Patrick's day, right? Everyone's supposed to wear green. Well, there's lots of stories about St. Patrick and the four-leaf clover and all the rest. But some of those are true, some of those aren't true, but the actual true story of St. Patrick is pretty extraordinary. See, the church early on had been an evangelistic powerhouse. It was reaching people for Jesus Christ right and left. It was an astonishing thing, but it grew initially within the Roman Empire, that Mediterranean world that the (laughs) Roman Empire dominated. On the fringes of the Roman Empire, you had barbarians. That's what they were called by the Romans. You had barbarians. They spoke different languages. They worshiped different gods. And initially, the church had some mild success in converting them, but after a while, not so much. And in fact, it got to the point where they thought, this is impossible. You can't convert the barbarians. First, you have to civilize them. And then you can convert them. And then you have to help them become good Christians like us. That's more or less how they saw it. So the way way they saw evangelism was you preach, the person makes a decision, and then you make them good Christians like us. That's, That's how it happens. Preach, decision, belonging. So in the fifth century, you have Patrick. Who's converted to Christ. And he lives near these barbarians called the Celts, the Irish. They were a pagan people. It was believed by many Christians you just couldn't reach these people, it was just impossible. And interestingly, Patrick himself, for six years, was actually a slave to the Celts. And it was there that he learned the language, and it was there that he fell in love with the people. Interestingly enough, eventually he felt called to reach out to them. Do you know how he did it? And this is extraordinary because of his incredible success. Because the Irish were saved by thousands, churches were planted, innumerable churches through Ireland. And after that, these missionaries began spreading out to other countries as well. But how did he do it? Well, there are a number of things involved. One of the main things was that he understood the people and he loved the people. But then he would take a community, a small community of people with him. He didn't go by himself. He took a small community and he would plant that community by a village or a town. And the Christians in that community, sort of an apostolic band, would just start loving on the people of the village or in the town. They would serve them. They would pray for their sick. They would practice radical hospitality, inviting them to come and share meals with them, inviting them to come and participate in worship. The whole ethos of the outreach was to take people in and make them a part of the community. The key phrase in George Hunter's book, The Celtic Way of Evangelism, the key phrase is, belonging before believing. See, the Roman Christians lapsed in the idea, you preach, there's a decision, then you belong. Uh, St. Patrick reversed it. First you belong. And then, drawn by the faith of the people around whom you're living, you believe, and then you're disciples belonging before believing. Isn't that what Jesus did? Who did he eat with? Tax collectors and sinners, which was worse. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. He ate with the outsiders. Why did that cause the Pharisees such offense? Why were they so upset about that? The Pharisees believed that God forgave sinners. They believed that. But here's how the Pharisees saw it. You're a sinner. God stands here. You go off in your sin. We're standing with God. When you repent, you can come back and be part of the community. Jesus, instead of communing with sinners after they repented, he did it before. That's why they were offended. That's why they felt like The Lord was letting down standards. That's why they thought he was dangerous. The people needed to be righteous or judgment would fall. And here's Jesus encouraging sinners by hanging out with them and socializing with them while they're still unrepentant. But Jesus said, hey, you don't don't understand. I'm a physician. And a physician goes to the sick. Could you imagine going to the doctor and the doctor says, well, you know, I'd really like to help you, but you need to lose 30 pounds. You lose 30 pounds, you come back, then I can help you. Or, yeah, I know you're having trouble breathing, but you've been smoking all these years. What do you expect me to do about it? Go quit smoking and then come back. I mean, what if, what if our doctor started passing judgment on us? We don't want the we, The doctor is there, we come, and he or she takes us as we are and seeks to help us where we are. Community. Community means loving everyone, embracing everyone, giving them a place to belong even before they believe. I believe that's the kind of church that will reach people today. Church is putting up boundaries. People aren't interested in that. People aren't interested. They're also not interested in emptying out all values and standards. People people are unnerved by the moral chaos of our society. I mean, there are a few loud mouths, dominating public discussion that aren't unnerved by it, but more normal people are unnerved by what they see, the moral chaos that's going on. What they What so many people are longing for is a community where there are standards, but where people matter, and they're not judged and put down. That's what we need to be as a community going forward. People need to know First Woodway is made up of people who love people, and they love people even when those people have problems. And why shouldn't they? Because we've got problems, right? It's like that old song, Linda and I were were, uh, in Boston and we saw the bar that they actually filmed, the old sitcom Cheers, you remember that? It's interesting because Cheers is like before some of you lived probably. (laughs) But almost everybody knows the song, right? Sometimes you want to go where? Where everybody knows your name and what else? And they're always glad you came. You want to go where problems are all the same, you know, everybody knows your name. Doesn't that really sum it up? Why do you have to go to a bar for that? Right? Truth is, you won't find it in a bar, but can't you find it in church? You know, sometimes you just want to go. What we want is for people to be so attracted to the community that they'll put up with our faith. Does that make sense? It's kind of like, well, you know, I don't know if I believe everything they believe, but man, I I just like being there. I like these people. That person's already got one foot in the kingdom of God. We love them and pray them into the kingdom of God. So promoting community. The second thing, or actually the fifth thing, is we as a church need to, I think, recommit to building up families, not that we don't do that. Of course we do that. And, and when I say families, I'm thinking about families that have children at home. And, and it's not like only those people matter. Everybody matters. Many of you don't have children at home. Many of you, you know, are single. I understand that. And everybody matters. Everybody's part of the community. So don't get me wrong on this. But in our day, the families are in desperate straits. It is harder to raise children today than it's ever been. I'm absolutely convinced of that. You know, I think about when I was a kid, my parents would just, you know, let, let me open the door and walk out to play for the day. All right, see ya. Because they figured that, you know, the other parents were watching too and everything was gonna be okay. I, I could never dream of having done that with my kids. I wouldn't just let them go out the door and play for the day. For those of you with children now, not only will you not let them outside, you've got to worry about what's sneaking inside over the internet. I mean, it's a difficult, difficult time. And you don't even have institutions backing you up. Half the time, they're trying to undermine you, trying to get to your kids and teach them something contrary to what you believe. It is a difficult time for families. Now, for many years, sociologists believed that that. When religion weakened, families weakened. You could could see a correlation between the breakdown of strong religious belief and the breakdown of strong families. There's an interesting book written recently that I think gives us some reason to just consider this or reconsider this. It's by a sociologist named Mary Eberstadt. It's called How the West Really Lost God. And what she points out is this that though it's certainly true that a loss of religious faith can lead to the weakening of the family, she said, when you really look at the evidence and study the correlation, you can make as good an argument, maybe a better one, that the breakdown of the family leads to a breakdown of religious faith, that the causality goes the other direction. Now, That's interesting because when you go to the Bible, you see that the family and faith are tied closely together. So let me read to you what Moses tells Israel. He's talking about the commandments of God, and he says, teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors. You know, you need to teach it to your children. There are other passages that talk about their children and their children. It goes on through the generations. Our church needs to take responsibility for passing the faith on to our children and establishing them in the faith. Too many people. Too many people grow up and walk away from their faith. Too many. Too many. You can't say that you're concerned about our culture and also be indifferent on the discipleship of children. That's important. Now, interestingly, when it comes to children, you can't deal with them independently of their families. Children and families go together. Research shows that the most important influence on children and whether they grow up to affirm their faith and live it out as adults, the most important influence is their parents. Not that their parents have to be perfect Christians, maybe not even good Christians by some glorious standard, but serious Christians. Serious Christians, where it's, where, It's more than just checking a box on Sunday. But they clearly intend to live for God. That deeply impacts the child. Now, there's an implication of that. It means ministry to children and youth means ministry to whole families and to their parents. And one of the things as a staff that we're going to be looking at going forward is how can we minister to the whole family? Not just children, not just youth, not just adults, but children, youth, and adults as a family. The second thing that research shows is that children tend to grow and hold on to their faith more frequently when they're part of the whole community, and especially when they know other adults in the church besides their parents. See, a lot of churches, they just know other kids and their parents. But what helps them grow in adult faith is when they know other adults. What does that mean? It means we want to connect the kids up with other adults. And this brings me to a point I just want to pound home this morning. I really do. Now, you know, I mean, you know, if you come here very often, I don't don't try to guilt people until now. I mean, I'm going to be just a little bit judgy here. Just a little bit. I'll repent later. When parents come and they dedicate their children to the Lord, I always turn and I ask the congregation, will you be committed to these families, doing what you can to help these families to thrive and help these children to grow? And I always hear, amen. Now, is that a true amen, or is that a pleasurable ritual? If it's a true amen, we should not be begging on our knees for people to teach children on Sunday. And we shouldn't hear things like, well, you know what, I did my time. Or, you know, let let the people with kids take care of it. Here's Here's what's happening. This is what's happening in our church with our life groups For parents of children living at home, all right? Um, Almost all of them volunteer with the children. They already do it, they're doing it. They're doing it so faithfully that they have a hard time sustaining their life group because, because half of them are gone every week, they don't have the same continuity. Now, listen, if we really care about families and we're not keeping score about how much some person's done and how much another person's done, you know, we're not keeping score. Have I done my duty or not? We're not doing that. If we're really thinking about how can we support families, then one of the things we really do need to take seriously is that God wants us to invest in children and that we as adults need to invest in children, form relationships with these children, we need to do that. And by doing that, we allow the parents to have relationship with other parents and to thrive. I've met with another number of young families recently, and I said to them, listen, I promise you, we are going to do absolutely everything we can to broaden the tent of people who volunteer in children's ministry. Not so that they'll be left off the hook, but so that They're not carrying the whole load. So I am appealing to you, my brothers and sisters, families are vital. Building up families are vital. And we help build up both the parents and the whole family when we all kick in and help with the children and help with the youth. And I don't mean just warm bodies. I mean minister. I mean minister. Because that's what we do here. We don't have warm bodies here. We don't don't just have babysitters. We don't do that. We minister. I'm asking you to be open to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. It's fine to talk about the prompting of the Spirit. What happens if we ain't going to listen to the Spirit on something like this? I cannot believe that the Lord sends families to us and doesn't also call people, the necessary people, to minister to those families. So I appeal to you, if you don't have children, maybe you have the freedom to serve. And what a blessing that would be to our families. So yeah, I'm I'm being a little judgy maybe, right? I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be, but we're all in this together. We're all in this together. And then finally, I don't have to take a long time with this, but it's very, very important. We need to meet needs and heal hurts. Jesus, again, came as a physician to meet needs and heal hurts. The gospel is all about overcoming sin, but remember, sin has its consequences. If I sin, it has consequences for me, and it can warp and twist my life in ways that it takes time to to get straight. I need help. But not only that, my sin doesn't just affect me, it affects other people. And so they may because of my sin, need help. Think about sin in the world like air pollution. You know, the air pollution reaches to a high, high enough level and people get sick all over. It's more obvious in some than others. It works quietly in some. It it's, shows itself in, in some breathing difficulties in those who are more vulnerable, but it's, it's everywhere and it's working. So in our world, sin is at work, and it's our job as Christians to battle sin and death wherever we find it, to do what we can to minister to those needs. That's what the early church was so good at. They really were. See, we don't realize this because the world's been affected by the church, and so we don't know just how distinct Christianity was when it came into the world and what a positive influence it's had. So, for example, In the ancient uh, Mediterranean world, if someone was seriously ill, people thought they might die, what do you think they did with them? Took them to a hospital? There weren't any hospitals. They put them out in the street to die. The idea of being merciful, there there were Greek and Roman philosophers who said mercy is no virtue. Mercy is giving something that a person hasn't earned. Mercy is the opposite of justice. Justice is the virtue. So, this idea of mercy, no thanks. So, they would abandon people. Children who were unwanted, they would take them out in the countryside like people take dogs in the countryside and just abandon them. That's what they'd do with children. The children would die from exposure. The cities the cities were full of filth and crime and people were afraid of each other within them. Slavery, of course, was rampant and many of the slaves were treated with such degradation that it, it just is frightening to consider. And every woman was virtually a slave. Sometimes she was lov- lucky and had a loving father or husband, but not always. Women were were, were attracted to the church because in the church, they weren't treated like sex objects or objects at all. They were treated with respect and dignity, and they thought, this is, this is what we want. They flocked into the church. In fact, people started coming into the church because they noticed that when folks were left out on the street to die, the church would take them and bring them into their own homes and take care of them. They would go collect up the children that were abandoned and they'd bring them in and raise them as their own. They got a reputation for this kind of thing. One pagan philosopher said, "'Behold how they love one another.'" He saw the churches made up of a bunch of superstitious rubes, but he said, "'Look how they love each other.'" Because they were taking care of one another, and they protected one another. In the second century in the Roman Empire, there was a series of plagues. It may have been the early onset of smallpox. Nobody's quite knows, but it decimated the population. Listen, we're talking about coronavirus. It's nothing, nothing. Those plagues, as much as a third of the population was wiped out over a series of years. Think about that. Think about what's happened in our society over the coronavirus, and imagine what would happen if a third of the population died from it. So the people were terrorized by the plague, but if they went to the pagan temples, what would they find? Nothing and no one, because the priests had all fled the city to avoid the plague. But the Christians, the Christians brought those people home and they nursed them. In some cases, the Christians got sick themselves, and died in a remarkable number of cases. Not only they remained healthy, but the people survived. The word started spreading around that these Christians have some kind of power, some (laughs) kind of healing power. Would you think? Would you think? But the point is, it was through meeting need. It was through showing mercy. There's a great verse, in, in. I'm ending in just a moment, but there's a great verse here in Ephesians 4 that I'm not sure, I'm, well, I am sure. I'm sure I haven't taken this seriously enough. And I think as a staff, we need to really take it seriously. It says this, Christ gave himself, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. These are, you might say, offices. It's either four or five, depending on how you count them. Pastors and teachers might be one office. But he gave these offices. What for? To do the ministry? Well, yes and no, because look what it says. He gave them, verse 12, to equip his people for works of service. Actually, he calls people to the ministry to equip the whole congregation for works of diakonoia, service or ministry. Diakonoi is the word from which we get our word deacon. Everyone's called to be a deacon in that sense. And the, the ministers are to equip and facilitate and help the congregation do works of ministry. So we're talking about meeting needs. We're talking about all of us seeing people and their needs and being willing to spend money, time, energy to help not always easy. We need the Spirit to guide us because, let's face it, sometimes trying to help makes things worse. But with the Lord's Spirit guiding us, we can make a difference. So praying, following the Lord's prompting, preaching the gospel in word and deed, having Christian community, building up families, meeting needs and healing hurts, if we can, if we can, in flesh that kind of Christianity, can you imagine? Can you imagine what will happen? That's the church I want to be part of. That's the church I want to be pastoring. I see so much of that already. But in myself, I feel as much as anything the need to pray God, help me, help us. I hope you feel that need. And that's how I want to end this service, just in prayer, that God would stir us, use us, that we leave this place more determined than ever to be God's people in this world. Pray with me, would you? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus Christ to save us from sin. And thank you that you've not only shown us mercy, but you allow us to be part of your ministry of mercy in this world. Lord, we pray you would help us to love one another, help us to love those who are not part of this community. Lord, help us to practice the kind of radical hospitality that changes lives Lord, we ask that you do this by empowering us in your spirit. Teach us to pray. Lead us forward. You've done so much, Lord. Where we are as a church today, Lord, we stand on the shoulders of men and women who have prayed and worked and sacrificed, and we're grateful for that. In standing on their shoulders, Lord, we want to reach higher still, and we pray that you would help us. And so we ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would guide us from this day, that you would open us, Lord, to your leadership, and that you would use us in ways beyond our reckoning, beyond our expectation, to the glory of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray this. Amen.